everyone. Welcome to another episode of DevOps Decrypted. This is episode five, the crazy corporate container conundrum conversation C5s. Yeah, say that fast three times backwards. Um, I'm your host, Romy Greenfield, and I've got with me Jobin, Matt, and Lisa today. Um, so today we are going to be talking about, what are we going to be talking about? <laughs> um, Black Friday, do you want to start off with that? Black Friday and DevOps so first of all, um, well done, Romy, for uh, managing to come up, uh, come out with that name without tripping over it. Um, <laughs> and honestly, for those of you listening in, this is the first take. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Black Friday. Um, yeah, apparently, um, so we're recording this on the 11th of November. Um, so just before Black Friday, and by the time the episode goes out, um, it would have been Black Friday. Um, we've been looking uh, in quite some depth at some um, things that have gone wrong on Black Friday in the past. Um, and how we can solve them with technology, um, process some people and technology. Um, so yeah, that's I think what, that's what we wanted to talk about, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Definitely don't want to say that name out loud. So let's talk about containers. <laughs> <laughs> so containers are great for doing this sort of thing for you know Black Friday. I mean, um, it's almost like the the ideal use case where you look at doing containers and container orchestration. Um, how do you scale up your services given that there's going to be 5x or 10x the, the user sort of demand? Um, uh, and, and, and yeah, so I think it fits quite nicely into this, this container world. Um, and um, hopefully people are taking advantage of, of doing things like that for Black Friday. Black Friday is the perfect use case for it, isn't it? I mean, when is another time when the usage spikes so high? Yeah, yeah. I, I think we have seen cases where company websites go down during that specific time of the year. Uh, I believe there was a blog post or was it an interview, Matt, you have done where we had listed out a few examples of company websites going down and obviously costing a lot to the business. Yeah, and uh, and I think you know in, in previous years, um, it used to be um, like most of them, um, anyone like retailing, um, high volume of, of stuff, um, particularly consumer electronics. Um, yeah, people going down, hard down. And over the last few years, it seems like Black Friday's got bigger and bigger. Um, but also in terms of the tech that people use, um, the resilience and scaling of things, that seems to have got better and better. So I think you know you still hear the old outlier. And I'm not going to mention the one I'm thinking of um, <laughs> because uh, I think everyone suffers from this to, to some degree. Um, but yeah, containers are brilliant um, for doing this. End of story, right? Yeah, I, I would say so, but let, let me ask you this. I mean, it's not all about containers, right? I mean, even before we talk about containers, I think AWS probably changed the game with its auto-scaling capabilities. And, you know, you could do that even without worrying about containers, you know, spinning up EC2 instances as needed using your auto-scaling group. And, you know, obviously you have to still figure out what are the different criteria for scaling, uh, but that's true for containers as well. Um, the, I think the biggest thing for me is, you know, Kubernetes changed the game. It makes it a lot more easier. That's what I'm confused. I mean, auto-scaling groups, I mean, they do a pretty good job as well, right? So what is the advantage for me to use Kubernetes over standard EC2 instances and auto-scaling groups, Matt? Well, you know, um, I don't ever shut up about Kubernetes. Sorry. <laughs> um, it's, it's just like, you know, I dream about it. And, you know, it's... Um, but I'm very aware that, you know... Uh, I've kind of like got this echo chamber of uh, you know how how things are done. Um, honestly, I think we were solving these problems before that. 
Um, and I think it comes back to things like getting away from monolithic applications. So I've been in many retailers, um, well, well, a few, um, where you go into them and you look at like why they can't deliver things quickly, why they can't um, respond quickly to outages, um, you, know, you know, the mean times to recovery and why they're terrible. And it's because they've got these big bloated apps that do like everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the years, it seems that um, those have kind of died a death a little bit um, and people are focusing a bit more on, writing you know, smaller bits of code, um, microservices. Um, and as soon as you start down that path, then you can do things like saying, um, you, you couldn't say like, um, oh yeah, we're um, bigretailer.com and we've got this big application. It runs on a server and we'll just have five of them because it wouldn't like work that way and it would take them months or years to buy more servers. Um, and that is even if the, 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 the massive monolith could work together in the first place. But now we've got all these microservices. So you've got like one of these things running to, I don't know, talk to a payment gateway. Um, well, instead of just having one, let's have 100. These things become stateless. Um, so you, yeah. you can do that and they can communicate with each other. Um, and yeah, so maybe maybe the five Cs here, the containerization bit is a bit of a red herring. Like you say, yeah, auto-scaling in Amazon um, and all the equivalents in other clouds. Um yeah, can kind of solve these problems for you, right? It, it, it is interesting you mentioned about the monolith versus microservices uh, because, you know, earlier we used to have this scenario, oh, if I want to add more uh, capability into the application, you have one big application and you're basically increasing your um, RAM from maybe, you know, 25 gigabytes to 250 gigabytes for the Black Friday. So such a huge increase for the entire application. Now we are talking about microservices where, you're probably thinking about, hey, your billing microservice actually needs to go from, you know, 10 instances to 100 instances, and it's sort of scaling, whereas your profile app is not that hit uh, heavily. So it may still remain at 10 and maybe go up to 20 instead of, you know, billing going from 10 to 100. Uh, it's interesting the way you can scale these different microservices in different ways. Uh, uh, I think that's another advantage, yes. Just with, uh, I know that we're recording on the 11th of November, and uh, by the time you would have heard this, it would um, have been Black Friday already. Uh, but what I wanted to ask um, the two of you, Matt and, and Jovan, <clears throat> is we only have a few weeks. Uh, we can't, you know, uh, change these big, uh, these big legacy product, products into microservices, et cetera. What are some top tips for, for ensuring uh, that Black, Black Friday goes smoothly for some of these organizations with little time left. Oh, you should have started planning this long ago, Lisa. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, oh. Um, so, um, so I would be, so this is about, um, yeah, where do you start? Because uh, it it's so easy to say, oh, oh yeah, microservices, just do everything in microservices, exactly. auto-scaling <laughs> groups, Kubernetes, right, yeah, 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 yeah. If you had all the time in the world, yes, but all if you All the time don't. in the world, because, of course, everyone's got all the time in the world to mm. do this sort of stuff, because, mm-hmm. you know, um, you're working in a large retail organisation and there's, there's no product owners who want new features or new products or um, new capabilities. None of that exists, right? Um, so, yeah, how do you start? Um I think there's a few things here. Um, caching is a good one. Um, you know, you look at things that are hit frequently. Um, uh, how much can you cache things? Um, if you can serve things from your edge, from your, um, you know, from CDN um, or some sort of proxy layer, 
Um, so is it going back to the origin service? So you get scale that way. Um, doesn't really work when you're dealing with things like stock allocation, because if you have 10 people through a cash allocate the same Tamagotchi or whatever mm. on a site, I'm showing my age, um, then that ain't going to work. Um, so after that, where are you looking? Um, so there's... Uh, Matt, um, Matt, I would argue, on, argue though that caching itself, it, that also is going to take time, right? I mean, implementing proper caching, that's a big initiative as well. Is, is it going to happen in like three weeks in time? Probably not. <laughs> uh, I don't know. don't know. Yeah. Maybe. But, but I, I'm thinking maybe what you can do is, I mean, obviously monitoring, provided you mm. have monitoring already implemented, you, you look for what is your current usage, right? Usage limits in terms of CPU, memory, find out where you are, how many users you're getting today. And you have to anticipate how many you might be getting during Black Friday, which can be a huge task. But again, based on the past few years, you can probably anticipate and then, depending on that, are they at a new number, right? For your memory, for your CPU, for the number of instances that you might want. Uh, yeah, just do your best calculations. Uh, obviously, you don't have a lot of scaling, so you have to rely on your engineers to do that math for you. Uh, I have done that math many times in my past, <laughs> past experience. So at some point, you have to do that. Look at the statistics you have. You have figure out what you what you might be hitting during Black Friday, and then have your engineers ready to, you know. Uh, act if something goes wrong. Yeah, I feel like I've heard a story in the past as well from someone that worked in retail where they'd made all of those calculations and so they thought they were well prepared. And then um, some influencer on Instagram happened to tweet about their Black Friday sale. Oh, and wow. it was maybe three times what the maximum that they'd um, accounted for. Uh, hit them and they went down instantly and couldn't work out why and uh, someone eventually found the Instagram post so I feel like even if you've done the, the calculations maybe you know just <laughs> throw throw a bit extra in there in case that's exactly why Matt is actually so lyrical about Kubernetes right and yeah. containers and scaling <laughs> yeah yeah that, that, that's the thing um I, I don't think when, when you're doing this sort of work I don't think you're ever done um mm -hmm. there's there's always something unexpected that's going to happen um, and yeah, I just want to get behind what Jobin said there around, around like monitoring, um, and you know not just CPU and, and disk, but you know the, the time that things take. Um, you can be looking at um, if you get if you can get a good overview of all the constituent parts, even even just understanding what all the constituent parts are for. I don't know the um, the function of adding something to a shopping basket um, that could be hitting five or six different services start measuring them um you know you can use good application performance monitoring tools to look at those and you look at them and you see you know it goes through the chain this one takes one milliseconds this one takes two milliseconds this one takes three milliseconds this one takes 40 milliseconds that one takes three milliseconds oh hang on that one took 40 milliseconds that's probably going to start to be a bottleneck then um if you know once you get under 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 big loads you can start to find where you might want to invest investigate some time and effort into making things a bit better um and those sort of things might be candidates for um early microservices stuff um you got three weeks before black friday you're not going to replace your model with a, with a microservice um yeah. but an old mentor of mine once talked said to me about microservices like just consider it just to be a big ball of mud and you know mm -hmm. find the bits of mud on the edge that are kind of a little bit less sticky and you can maybe pull them <laughs> off um and make a, a nice small microservice bit of mud out of that 
Um, <laughs> and, and that sort of thing. I don't know why I came up with the ball of mud, but um, it's, yeah, it's oh, a it's, beautiful it's, analogy. Yeah, <laughs> lovely. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So, um, yeah, one other have... thing on that. Sorry, Remy. Um, yeah. Sorry, I'll, I'll shut up in a minute. Um, <laughs> is um, um, I would talk about circuit breakers. Um, so, if you kind of accept that. Um, things are probably not going to go your way on Black Friday, which is good. It means you've got lots of demand and there's probably going to be some problems. Um, you kind of want to minimise the customer impact on those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll be looking at things like um, uh, if you have problems, for example, if you're having to talk to a database that allocates stock and everyone has to wait for that because um, you can't um, you can't do that in parallel. If you've only yeah. got 100 Tamagotchis to sell, if you, you know, cash the selling of 200 of them, then you've got a problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, so, so what tends to happen is you get this, this thundering herd of activity waiting on database, perhaps, this mythical database, um, where um, each, um, each request starts queuing up and it waits and it waits and it waits. And you'll probably find it waits for 60 seconds um, before it finally something times out somewhere. Um, and the user gets like a blank screen or an error 503. Um, why not look at these things and, and and trip it at 10 seconds, perhaps? Because if you've got loads of like requests building up, waiting 60 seconds, um, that's just going to hammer the database. So if it's not going to work, then just bail on it. And write client code that does things like, sorry, we're in a queue. You can put a nice little, um, I don't know, piece of tumbleweed ro- rolling across the screen, <laughs> the user, um, and you know, mitigate that way. Um, yeah, so what yeah, what makes it worse is when the client is actually timing out at 10, 10 seconds or something, and then the database is actually timing out at 60 seconds, and the client will keep clicking after the 10 second. That is yeah. sending a 10 different requests instead of one, and all of them are now going to queue in the database, making things even worse. Right. Matt, that's a great suggestion because uh, according to the news, there's going to be a lot of shortages uh, around toys. I mean, I've been reading some articles around, uh, you know, tips for how to shop on Black Friday. And it's, uh, you know, <laughs> get up early, you know, do your shopping early hours in the morning if you can do that. You know, if you can buy um, your your toys or your gifts um, over the telephone or on a, on a mobile app um, versus getting onto their website, you know, there's different avenues to try and uh, get the get the tools and gifts that you want uh, to put the smiles on those loved ones' faces. So what you're saying is 10 years back, I had to wake up early, go to Walmart and stand in the queue. <laughs> yeah. Now I have to do the same thing yeah. online. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. But you can Thank do it from you, the comfort of your home. You can do it from the comfort of your home with, with a hot <laughs> cup of coffee in hand. Sounds good to me. And they call yeah. this progress. Yeah. <laughs> they call it progress. But, but Mark, coming back to the topic, so is Kubernetes the only answer to Black Friday? Definitely. No, I'm joking. <laughs> no, it, it's not. Um, to get to that point where you can just go, oh, yeah, well, we'll just spin up more containers in Kubernetes. Um, I think you, you need to you need to be on like a two or three-year path, very, very dedicated to properly containerizing things from the fundamentals, um, properly microservicializing, if that wasn't the word it is now, um, everything. Um, and it takes quite a lot of effort to um, to get to that um, in any organization. Um, the only solution, no, um, the solution is the patterns. It's about encapsulating things. Um, containers and Kubernetes fit them very, very nicely. 
Um, mm-hmm. But there's, there's there's many different ways of doing it. Um, and uh, yeah, most of them are container-based and you see a lot of innovation in that world. Um, but equally, you know, you've got to pick your battles. And coming back, Lisa, to you know, what you said about um, where can you start, um, maybe you're running an infrastructure where everything's running on virtual machines, um, but you, you've done some work to use tools like having golden images so you can actually replicate virtual machines um in which case you can be using things like auto scaling in amazon mm-hmm. um, yeah. which yeah. does things you know you can do things like if, if all your instances are more than 75 percent busy then create a whole load more mm-hmm. um and have the thing automatically doing that for you um so yeah it, it's all the, it's all the same concepts um kubernetes is brilliant and i won't hear a word said against it <laughs> any kidding um <laughs> Kubernetes but. smells. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. That's welcome to <laughs> um, if, if you could, if you could offer, so, so obviously the clock is ticking and um, for, for those who haven't had their two year plan in place two years ago, um, it, you know, Black Friday is coming around the corner. What are some things that they can, uh, our, our listeners can do in order to learn some good lessons from, you know, maybe not having uh, uh, implemented microservices at this point or, or as many as they needed to, what could they take away from a Black Friday where they weren't actually prepared? I would say monitoring, right? I mean, see what's going on and have the data ready, right, for next time when you are going to, you know, say that, okay, hey, we need Kubernetes. This is why, right? Uh, yeah. see, see how many uh, people came on board, what was the unexpected volume of traffic that you got hit with, and then what would have happened if there was like that extra memory or extra containers running, which would have helped you, you know, scale up. Right? I was going to say, I just suppose that um, it's actually quite good to have a bad Black Friday example if they're not getting the buy-in from executives yeah. and higher-ups in the company, because if, you know, it all goes tits up i don't know if i can say that on the podcast (laughs) (laughs) if it all goes terrible if it all goes terribly wrong then um at least they have that evidence now that if we had the x y and z or if we at least tried to implement that then this might not have happened or these are this is a very strong use case for why we should start implementing this strategy yeah almost all engineers sorry matt (laughs) i was just going to say that almost all the engineers and architects uh, Enzo is saying, I told you so, right? Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> yeah, Romy, um, you, you basically set up my point um, <laughs> there because, yeah, I was going to talk culturally about this. Um, I think um, if you accept to some degree that you're going to fail or create a culture of psychological safety where that is an acceptable situation, um, then you can learn from it. Um, the reality is that Black Friday 2021 will be different to Black Friday 2020, will be different mm-hmm. to Black Friday 2022, yeah. etc. So if you're not always learning about this stuff, then you're not, you're not going to succeed. Um, so the, the best possible outcome here is that you get a 10x increase in orders and revenue, etc. Um, every request gets fulfilled successfully. There's no outages, no um, slowdowns, etc., um if so brilliant give yourself a gold medal uh give a star um if it isn't like that um then i would context i I would couch that in two principles number one congratulations on getting all the traffic 
Um, number two, what can we learn from this? And if you are doing, if you're putting monitoring, if you're thinking of things that, um, if, if you are accepting that you think something is going to break, but you can't actually fix it before Black Friday, mm-hmm. um, then making sure that your organisation is in a position for that to be seen as a good thing, rather than like, look at those useless people who yeah, they, yeah. Even, they knew this was going to happen and yet still let it mm-hmm. happen. Um, mm-hmm. If you can be couching those in the right kind of um, constructive, forward-thinking, learning, um, in- innovative ways for next year, um, then you're gonna then then you're gonna win, or do better than than the people who have got these horrible um, um, pathological cultures where um, failure is not tolerated. Yeah, awesome. Uh, talking about Kubernetes and containers, right? Uh, previously, what I would have said is especially in light of what Lisa was saying, okay, you don't have containers now, but you want to actually move to containers, containerize your application, maybe install microservices. I would have told my team in the past, hey, download Docker desktop, right? Start playing with the containers and Kubernetes and whatnot, right? But what I'm hearing now is Docker desktop is not free anymore. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't understand. So <laughs> what's going on there? Yeah, so I think there's been this change in the Docker licensing recently. So yeah. yeah, it's only only now free for like individual developers or yeah. open source communities, which is great that it's still free for for people that want to use it on a small scale, but now having to pay um, to use it from an enterprise level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering why the logical thinking behind that is obviously it's a lot of money because I know a lot of mm-hmm. teams are actually using Docker desktops. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, you know, there are a few competitors out, out there too. And there are alternatives that engineers are coming up with. Matt, I would like to hear hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so um, so I've been um, yeah tracking this one quite a lot because uh, working in the in the CIO function, um, you know, internal IT is uh, is a team that I sit quite close to, and we kind of um, we're very lucky at Adaptivist in that we don't have. Um, mandated golden image installs of our laptops um we get to use um decent kit um you know i've got like latest generation no previous but one generation macbook uh with an m1 chip in it the new shiny fast silicon from apple um so so the result is we don't actually have a department that says right well we're installing docker on all these laptops we're installing the same gui for uh developments um, on all these desk, on all these laptops, so it was a little bit of a surprise when we started counting up how many people are actually using Docker Desktop, mm-hmm. um, especially as we do we do a lot of work in containers, and we know that we're running Docker um, and other containerized solutions um, for CI, um, building container images and doing some good work there in um, pushing things out as container images. To production and some of our biggest, our busiest services are run out of containers. Um, but yeah, you forget that Docker Desktop is where it all starts. Um, especially developers are running, building containers, the same container images that end up getting built in CI and then pushed out to production on the Docker Desktop. Um, Docker have traditionally, uh, and I say traditionally like they're, a, they're an ancient retailer or something, <laughs> like the ones we were talking about in the previous segment. Um, been around since 2014 or whatever it is. Um, they've they've struggled to make any money. Um, 
so the, they get some bad press because you could argue that Docker took a load of open source free technologies and smashed them all together and made something um, and then tried to charge money for it. Um, well, sounds like a lot of other vendors. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> the, putting that aside or trying to, um, yeah, they, they, they want to make money. I think, you know, they've, um, they're entitled to do that. Um, the, one of the, the, the significant things about it being a big part of how we do business and how we code our apps, uh, our products and services is that, um, well, we make money out of the fact that we can seamlessly uh, run containers on people's laptops. So actually, um, much as I like to bang the drum for free and open source software, I can see a justification for charging for this. And, you know, that's fine. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I think there are alternatives too. So in case if you want to move away from Docker, and it it, it must be said, Docker is not the only container technology out there. I mean, there are alternatives. There is Portman, there is Rocket, there is uh, Container D. Uh, but people always, you know, just, just like when you talk about container orchestration, you talk about Kubernetes. Uh, when you talk about containers, you automatically talk about Docker. Um, so that, that's still going to be the case, I think, um, for a few more years at least, I believe. Um, so and, and yeah. the good thing is, you know, Docker desktop is free for personal use. So you might still be able to, you know, get to play with it. And for a company, though, you have to, you know, find out the match in your organization and get a license for it, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so, so when I first saw this news, my first reaction was, oh, Docker. Um, right, I'm going to go and just 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 do do the alternative, or you know, take the the alternative um, technologies, Container D, Nerd CTL, Lima. I can brew install this. I can get this working. Um, Rancher desktop, etc. Yeah, we use that. That's just as good, uh, and, and it frees us from the tyranny of having to pay money to these 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 money grabbing people. Um, and then I realised that I managed to create something that um, only someone who is a container expert um, could run confidently. Mm. Um, and most of our devs are experts at doing dev work. Uh, and in order to save the money to pay Docker, we would have to make them into container experts. Um, that doesn't scale in a company of our size. Um, and quite apart from the fact that um, the, the Docker desktop thing is something we want to just stay out of the way and just do the job that it does really, really well. Um, and actually, combining a whole load of tech together in a, in a, in a nice graphical user interface um, that you can use without having to worry about it sounds like a classic thing that actually I can justify paying. That is a very good point, yeah. Yeah, yeah you don't have to worry about your new developer who is joining the team then picking up on this new technology, which he probably hasn't worked on before. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I can live with that. Yeah, I but buy your argument on that. I'm, I'm flipping. I'm kind of seesawing between the two, or penduluming, or whatever it is. Um, in that, there's been um, so, so one one of the key things I've always believed in for a long time is that um, a company with a monopoly on technology is a bad thing. Um, and um, Docker have kind of actually done quite well at getting that. Um, and to to my mind, it's it's good that actually um, there are open and free alternatives to all this um, um, to, to solve these problems. 
And there's been a flurry of activity in building those things up um, since the announcement. So, yeah, there's things like uh, competitors from there's there's a rancher desktop, for example, from Sousa, um, which can which operates in much similar way. It's not as mature. Um, reason I mentioned I'm running an M1 Mac is that it doesn't run on that. Um, so, you know, as as the world transitions to or, or as adaptivist transitions to getting people in one max, we won't be able to use it. So that's not good. Um, but there's activity out there and there's competition. Um, and I think that is good. Um, so, so yeah, it's been an interesting one. Well, in terms of cost, I mean, it, it is $7 per user per month um, for, for the team, uh, for the team licensing and, and it includes Docker desktop. Uh, I mean, I think, I think we pay more for our Netflix subscriptions per month. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I feel just bad now. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. No, not just Netflix, right? Almost all the streaming exactly. services in the world. Exactly. We <laughs> tell you that the truth bomb. Yeah. So uh, we are going to add Docker Enterprise to the mix. Okay, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> you must quit one streaming service to replace with Docker. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> I guess uh, on to the next topic. Um, Adaptivist is hiring. Are you a creative, (laughs) tenacious, passionate individual who would love to come and work for one of the greatest companies in the world? We have a global presence. We are partnered with uh, the likes of GitLab, CloudBees, AWS, and many, many more partners coming in the pipeline. We would love to have your innovation and your passion as part of our team. So please jump onto our website, check adaptivist.com, check out the open postings. Not only do we have DevOps openings, but we have openings across our entire organization for different uh, job types uh, at different uh, levels um, of skill. So please come and join us, uh, come join the fun. You must like Kubernetes. (laughs) <laughs> otherwise Matt will kill you <laughs> I'm not sure this is the image we're trying to project for but... <laughs> but yes I will come and kill oh, you and you, need a, you and you need a good sense of humour <laughs> yeah that is a must yeah <laughs> right so now that we've tried to sell adaptivists so well to yeah. the general public <laughs> um, do we have time to talk about the adaptivist hackathon because I feel like that's a good sales point <laughs> that is the actual sales point. I, I love yeah. our hackathons. You know, that's where the ideas bloom. Um, yeah, but Matt had been here way longer than I was. So I don't know, Matt, you might want to talk about it first. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we do a hackathon about once a year, once every 18 months. Um, yeah, we try to do it once a year. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, the whole idea is um, 24 hours um, of, um, yeah, basically hacking. It's... Uh, progressed quite a lot in the last few years um, in that we've been able to get more than just devs involved. Mm. So a traditional hackathon has been um, getting some devs who want to add a feature um, or do something a little bit left field um, that they don't ordinarily get the opportunity to and get some focused time on it. Um, Brilliant. Um, But yeah, um, we've had other initiatives like things like um, the marketing team coming together and um, for example, redoing um, a lot of how we do our internal content. Um, that's been a hackathon project in the past. Um, and yeah, I hope this year will be be no exception. We've got that coming up next week, I think. 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure last year um, it was a non-engineering based team that won overall as well, oh, wow. voted voted for by the company. There wasn't a single piece of code in the entire project. So yeah. that, that is the beauty of it, right? I mean, it's not mm-hmm. just engineering solutions. It's everybody in the company thinking about what I could do different to make this company a better place. Yeah. What is the new product that I have in mind, right? And mm-hmm. it doesn't come from the ethics. It comes from the people who are actually working on this since the engineers um anybody anybody within adaptivist or the company right um, mm-hmm. and also they actually pull together people from different teams it's not just the engineering team right yeah. it is also the product team the sales team the marketing team cs uh, customer service teams they all come together they come with their own ideas and perceptions and finally when it comes together and you know an idea is born uh I think people vote on it. And uh, out of the 10 ideas, I'm pretty sure there will be three or four, which are really good. And we take it forward, right? Yeah. Who were the winners last year? Because I was I was annoyed because it wasn't my team that won. Came second. <laughs> <laughs> what was your yeah. idea, Romy? I wonder you what, remember. What? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I've chosen to um, wipe that from my memory. That's why I can't remember the name. <laughs> <laughs> our, our one um we made a, a jira cloud api notifier so every time the um jira rest apis changed um for cloud it would update us in a slack channel because sometimes we'd found that they would just update things and not tell anyone in advance and it just broke everything so i remember managed, that i remember that yeah it was a good managed project. to do it it's still in an active channel if you want to find it <laughs> Well, that's great. Um, I think one of the, the key things around hackathons is um, when you're planning them, you, you work out what you're going to do and the logistics and the timings. And um, But part of it is also, well, what do we actually do with these things that are deemed to have been good? Um, and it's a terrible waste, I find, when like hackathon things just get finished and then just left on the side. Um, so that's great that it's still there and it's still doing uh, doing good work. Yeah, um, I think, didn't Script Runner come from a hackathon as well? Or is that a lie that I've made up? <laughs> no, no, I, I yeah, I do not think so. I mean, as much as I would have loved to have Skip Turner coming to a hackathon, I think it was acquired by Adaptivist. Jamie okay. came up with that idea. Maybe he he thought about it during a hackathon. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to get him on an interview and ask him. <laughs> and I don't think it's it's just um an idea that is only in Adaptivist side. I mean, it's been something that's going on in different companies. I uh, yeah. I'm right now in the US, but I was in the UK before working for British Telecom. We had something called the hot houses. So what we do is, you know, again, three days, not the 24-hour window that we have at Adaptivist. Uh, but, you know, we start, I, I think it went all the way from 8 to 8. Start mm-hmm. at 8 a.m. in the morning, 8 p.m. goes all the way. And, you know, three days, the business and the engineering teams come together, you know, build upon an idea. And most of the time, it eventually becomes a product, at least the winner. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have seen this happening in other companies too. So yeah, all the same. big companies might have some version of the hackathon, I believe. So I'm joined by Dom, Lily, Daniel, and Ashok, um, who've been doing a hack day project based on Kubernetes. Guys, do you want to tell us a bit about what your project was and what the inspiration behind it was? Can I throw Lily under the bus? You can try. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so 
project was basically just a bit of playing with Kubernetes and trying to learn about it. So we didn't have anything special that we wanted to deliver as such, any application, but we just wanted to learn more about Kubernetes because we felt um, that Adaptivist is kind of running a bit behind in the whole Kubernetes um, race. So, so yeah, that was it. Ashok? Yeah, just want to add, so how, um, uh, thanks Lily, and just want to add how it started. So we are working on the project IDP, it's a self-service. And when we did the research about this project, we saw everywhere is Kubernetes. So it's all about like um, uh, you deploy your uh, container, you deploy your application using Kubernetes. So that is where our Lily and myself, we had the discussion, where are we now? So, and, and we thought, okay, yeah. And I think that is where the Lily's idea came like, okay, why can't we do this during the hack day? And I think that is where she proposed to Matt, Chalky and Dom and everyone agreed. Let's, let's, let's crack on. Uh, I would just like to add, it wasn't just my idea. Dom had some interest in Kubernetes as well for his own project. So, so it was something that we wanted to tackle as a team and try to do different aspects of Kubernetes. And probably Dom can talk a bit more about the things that he wanted to achieve. Yeah, from my side, it was really from the kind of data engineering aspect. So we've, and also we've seen some of, a lot of our workloads we run in AWS and we're using a lot of the AWS managed services. And we can obviously choose to not do some of those things using AWS services. You know, we can we can build it ourselves. So it's some understanding some, some of that side of things. Um, so we continue to have a question of like, should we use this AWS service or, you know, should we roll our own? And um, sometimes that's oft, often driven by some of the the cases where AWS doesn't necessarily fully meet our needs. We have to bridge a gap somewhere. Um, but also one real example of this, I think, is when we look at like deployments and things like that, we've used um, CodeDeploy and tried to use um, Terraform with it and things like that. And the experience hasn't been great because you've got kind of two competing tools working with each other. So task definitions, what owns the task definition? I know Lily's done a lot of work with that. But from my side, it was a lot of the work I'm doing at moments with um, Elasticsearch. And if we wanted to run anything in Kubernetes, you want to get the logs out. So that was where uh, my focus was with this. So um, I don't know if you want to talk more, Lily, about your some of the, the fun you've had and also with the um, what you felt the deployments were like in Kubernetes versus ECS. Yeah, definitely. So what we've done, we've deployed one of the open source projects in Kubernetes using the Helm chart already provided. And, and what we found is that deployment was so much quicker and the development um, kind of life cycle was, was so much easier uh, using Kubernetes. On the other hand, figuring out the actual Helm chart and how does it all run and how does it all work from the network, networking point of view, connecting to AWS services, that was a bit hard a bit. So I think our main main take from, from the whole project was that running Kubernetes was hard, but using it is really easy. Um, so yeah, so I think developer experience is really great. So it was, uh, it was like when to click the button, uh, when, when you click the button, it is easy, but how to click the button, it was very hard. Yeah, that's right. I think one of the things that was interesting for us as well is um, the difference between environments and the developer experience. So we were able to um, schedule pods to run and they would happen you know, almost instantly. Um, which was really useful, obviously, from a developer point of view, from speed of iteration, all that kind of stuff. Um, and our experience of ECS is sometimes, you, you know, 
you're waiting for ECS, the state machine that runs behind ECS to actually schedule and get your get your service up and running. And when you put Terraform over the top of that and everything else, the developer iteration starts slowing down. Um, one thing that was interesting for me as well was um, deliberately killing um, a container because I was trying to um, get it to spit some logs out for Elasticsearch. Um, the time taken for me to kill the container run Docker PS, the container had already been restarted. With ECS, we know that would take probably at least 30 seconds. And it's just little things like that make a make a big difference. It's funny how satisfying it is, um, like being able to kill things really fast. Um, although I'm quite glad I'm not in the same room with you, Tom, right now. Um, <laughs> it's interesting. The, uh, it seems like uh, something that comes up again and again is this um, uh, this thing where you can use all the AWS services, and um, they're you know they're really great. You don't have to learn the tools too much. Um, maybe you, you deal with them through an API, through Terraform or CloudFormation or something like that. Um, um, but then you get this the kind of latency, just some delays in things starting up because obviously things are starting up on demand. Um, and then you go to Kubernetes, and things happen quickly. They happen almost instantly. Um, so. But that just seems like um, is that just scratching it? What is is that actually scratching for uh, for you folk? Is it is that a real thing that things can start quickly and and, and stop quickly? So one it, one it is, but the other one's complexity as well. So we have the old well, I'm not going to say old, the current method where we're using like Fargate or ECS. People are owning everything, right? So they own their network infrastructure like who is deploying into it they're owning all their security groups that are controlling all the ingress they're you know and when you're running a kubernetes cluster actually you've just got a chart and you say i want to run x container and you know it'd be scheduled this way and actually all the other infrastructure concerns that's covered for the people who run the platform um so what what you, you you're shifting the complexity to the people who run the cluster rather than to the people who run the service um so it's a bit of an inversion of the of the relationship um, so, current, so, so as much as like using the AWS managed service Terraform is actually, is seen as easier, it's really not. It's easy for us because we know it. It's a known quantity, but that doesn't actually mean it's easier. It's um, th- w- what we do is we use Kubernetes with people. If someone else wanted to use it, you know, we could actually have a generic chart for running their service. When if they want to run something in like Fargate, they still have to understand how network. It, well, they can, they can deliberately be ignorant of how VPC works, but they shouldn't be. Right? They should know where they want to place their task for example right it should be in a private subnet it should have an ALB in front of it when that 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 whole consideration is just taken away from you if you shift to kubernetes if you've actually got a platform team providing the kubernetes that it is um so i, I think it's actually quite an important thing to understand as much as you're gaining speed you're also reducing the amount of cognitive load on the engineer deploying their app and I think that's probably the reason while doing some research, I found lots of products that actually do that. So so kind of um, popular term is internal developer portals where developers would just request their own environments. And, and you know that behind the scene, it, scenes, it's all done in Kubernetes. But from the developer point of view, it's just like a pretty UI giving them whole isolated developer environments that they can mess up with without thinking too much about security constraints or anything like that or namespace clashes or or anything like that so just you know kind of because you mentioned developers and I, I my big thing from this was a whole developer experience thing and um i think the big thing when you, when we start talking about all of the aws uh, kind of components and everything else and effectively you have that um with kubernetes you, kind of gives you some element of separation to some degree. I think um, that's 
you know, one of the contributing factors behind the latency improvements, I guess, you you know, you could maybe, you know, uh, see. So one of the things we were discussing as part of the hack day is when we came out of this, because of the latency was so good, it starts opening up the developer experience to having, you know, when people are working on a feature branch, you actually create the whole stack, you know, all, all the pods required for their stack is, is part of the feature branch and you can do everything there. Um, and then obviously it's all it's all got rid of, um, you know, whatever point in life cycle it seems fit, whether it's the close of the PR or whatever. But certainly with some of the, the Terraform side of things, um, trying to do that is there's a lot more heavy lifting and a lot more latency there and potentially cost as well. That, that, that's the other thing. Some of the cost profiles behind some of the AWS services don't necessarily make make that sensible or uh, palatable. <laughs> Just to add, because we, on the on the on the namespace part is like yes, because it's not about the separation of the environment, but we just an example like Lily and myself, we are working on the on the same application uh, IDP backstage, and initially we were overstepping each other, and I was get, getting told off, hey, why you why you have done this, why you have done that, <laughs> and then and then and then we found yeah, then we found that okay, this is there is a namespace, and then we we, we started enjoying it like. She is working i'm working without affecting each other and today till today we are doing the same thing like tomorrow we have a demo but we know that okay we are not messing up our uh, demo environment is stable we are using a different namespace so it sounds like straight away you've uh, you've, you've managed to tick one of the boxes of having a, a multi-tenant cluster there yeah it's um it sounds like um the experience that it gives to devs you know that kind of instant gratification thing, which you know I try and make light of, but it's actually really massively significant when people are trying to innovate and trying to write code. Um, that seems to be the you know a massive takeaway from this. Um, and the other thing I'm thinking of is that yes, there's a whole load of complexity at running a cluster, um, and this team, forgive me, um, Chalk, um, ha- hasn't really started to do that yet. Um, and there's obviously a learning curve behind that. Um, but once we get past this and, and use the, the more mature um, elements of clustering, the um, the things that EKS give you, having a, a managed cluster, so you don't have to have to worry about like is the kubelet running, is the API server running, all that sort of stuff. Maybe this day was the perfect time um, to find that right kind of um, separation between what developers are doing and where they're innovating, and all the stuff that's going on under the waterline that you don't see. Um, and taking it from there, right? So I was I was going to add to that. So you're leading onto a thing where when we started off, like say, you know, I was I was in product initially, and I was you know doing stuff like TM4J and script writer and, and so on, doing infrastructure, and we you know we moved into ECS and Fargate. And the reason we made those choices was it was a managed service, and we it will run itself. We haven't got to worry about cluster management and all that the jazz that comes with that. And what happens is you get to a level of maturity when you're like, hang on a minute. <laughs> We need to kind of bring this back in and actually be a bit more mature about it. We've managed to make something we can deliver um, like e- easily, but actually we want a bit more maturity. We want a bit more control. Like even when it comes to costs, right? So Fargate costs a little bit more than the standard EC2 compute cost. But if we was running a Kubernetes cluster, like a, a suitably provisioned one, um, then actually we can we can pull the resource, uh, all the things we want to run onto that. It's, we're basically making shared hosting again for your business, right? You're, you're, you're controlling your costs. Speaking of costs, I think one thing to think about as well, what is the difference between uh, a feature branch environment and, for instance, staging? Why would we need staging all the time? Why don't we just treat that as a throwaway namespace? 
And that's where you could save lots of money because currently we have full AWS accounts with like lots of resources that are on 24 hours, 350, uh, 365 days a year. <laughs> yeah, up for a I short mean, year. <laughs> that that's a really good point actually having moving away from like labeled or like tagged environments as it were because we've internally we've seen the problem elsewhere we've been doing load tests and obviously there's contention for that environment between the load tests and other developers maybe needing it for other bits of feedback so having like feature environments um definitely feels like a, a good developer thing um just while i'm talking one other thing to call out one of our other motivations behind this as well was um we trip well, wouldn't say tripping over helm charts but certainly some of the the things that we're all looking at uh you know other products we want to try and things like that there's you know there's helm charts one thing i was looking at was trino um and there's a helm chart available for it so we can quickly innovate you know and matt you were mentioning innovating earlier and i think this is another another kind of um example of that where where it gives us that better developer experience so people can just quickly grab a helm chart provided by a vendor to, to prove something yeah, I, I talk a lot about um, how um, how it's undervalued to be doing the same sort of things that other people are doing. Um, I often get accused of kind of cargo culting stuff when I say like, "All oh, these people are using like Helm charts," um, and, and so sometimes the retort is, um, "Yeah, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing for us." Um, but the reality is that if you are um, on these same sort of bandwagons air quotes for the podcast um then um yeah you can go out and see um yeah the things that we want to try and use things like um yeah backstage trino etc um there are helm charts out there um they don't necessarily exactly work for us because of uh, the unique way we want to do things um but you know it's a starting point we don't have to invent this stuff from, from scratch um and we're really able to start leveraging the open source, or not, well, not necessarily open source, but the things that are out there to be used, um, and that means, yeah, we can spend our time hacking on other things that um, that are more important to us. So, um, so yeah, it was basically a day, a hack day. Um, I feel like I, th I think it's well overdue. Um, everyone else here is is bored of me just going Kubernetes, blah 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 blah. It's brilliant, hooray! Um, and <laughs> I'm really really glad that uh, the team. Um, decided to go off and do this and while i'm wondering does there's um um have there been any sort of kind of epiphanies through doing this that have made you go kind of like ah yes we could probably use it for this um and i say that because i don't think it's sensible or realistic for us to say well we're just going to replace everything we've got in aws kubernetes that ain't going to be uh, be a sensible starting point um where would you start looking at actually moving some stuff in there other than the, uh, the things you already talked about um, from from my side, so um, we've we've got a project called a data highway, which is all of, all about kind of uh, routing and storing data. And part of that we uh, part of that we store data for um, you know long periods in S three. And now and again, we want to rehydrate it into a thing. Um, that rehydration uh, process, we're you know we're doing in AWS at the moment, but that's something that I think we could probably do. In Kubernetes, because also it's not customer facing, it's relatively low risk. If you see what I mean, because it's it's internal. Obviously, we can cherry pick where we uh, start with it, but that's the for me uh, probably where I'd start. So for me, there's also internal services. So like we've got <clears throat> as much as it was a 
um, an experiment to start with, we've got the internal GitLab, and I'd very much like to shift that onto a Kubernetes. So where we was looking at the reference implementation that GitLab provides, and we were producing some, like some Terraform and Packer stuff for, for that, it, it makes more sense to actually spend the time maintaining a cluster and then using the vendor chart and making the appropriate changes. And it means if we want to experiment with any change, we could just, again, deploy another site namespace. Does it work? Okay, everything's cool. Right, let's, you know, let's promote it. When at the moment we have to create a Packer image, we have to change the the, you know, the, the auto-scaling groups. Um, and it's, like, it's, it's quite a convoluted process to get there when actually we could just spend our expertise learning how to run the platform rather than learning how to run the product. So I'd like to do that with with GitLab and also experiment like like Don mentioned. There's other products like I'd love to get GitPod running. I, I use it personally. I'd love to get an internal GitPod, especially with them on MacBooks coming around and people want to be able to do things they can't necessarily do on it, <laughs> for example. So they could just go run a, a Docker-based developer environment. I think that'd be quite a nice experience. That's the response to the um, like Intel. Uh, sorry, Apple going over to using um, ARM-based silicon and Docker yeah. desktop changing. Blah blah blah. Isn't it? Yeah. Pretty. Yeah. Pretty much. Ashok, final thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, we we already we already mentioned about two internal projects. Our application itself is internal developer platform. So yeah, so and we already uh, already on that uh, journey. So we have already uh, think we deployed it and we have a demo with our CIO and CTO tomorrow. So just to see how we've used uh, our uh, Kubernetes and and what is our future of it. So. And I think um, I think all of these things that you've said is more like from the user point of view or from a developer point of view, we want to deploy all of these Helm charts. But I think as a team, we have decided that it's a teamwork to run this EKS cluster. None of us can pick that up with one of our projects. And that's kind of what we're trying to do. So kind of move, de deploy different things into it, but maintain the platform altogether to kind of get it into some production ready state. And that's not going to be an easy ride, but, but other people have done it so how hard can it be that, that's a good point like what does production look like for us we haven't even figured that out yet but that's 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 the story that's the journey even famous last words how hard can it be <laughs> actually the reality is yeah it's it's totally achievable absolutely totally achievable awesome so thanks for joining us and sharing your experience of your hack day and everything that you've discovered about using kubernetes during it Great. Do you want to say goodbye yourselves? <laughs> I'll raise a hand. No, that's <laughs> oh, I bet you've heard that one too many times. Goodbye yourselves. Uh, bye yourselves. Thanks for Bye-bye. Thanks for listening today, everybody. Um, you've been listening to DevOps Decrypted, which is part of the Adaptivist Live network. Um, if you want to connect with us on social, you can at Adaptivist and let us know what you thought of the show. But from me, Roby, and Joe, Bin, Matt, and Lisa, thanks for listening and see you next time. Bye.